there's so many variables flying at you in, in poker when it comes to people, hands, pot sizes, the type of game, setting, everything. Tilt, not tilt, solid player, not solid, dynamic of the table. There's so many variables at it. And same with real estate. There's so many variables that you have to kind of comp compute and bring it all together into a package. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing into commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, it's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation, and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies, and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations, and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to Passive Wealth Principles. My name is Jake Harris. I'm the host. And today I have a very special guest, Pasha Esfandiari. I was impressed myself that I was able to pr pronounce it when I first uh, connected up with him. Part of it is because uh, his brother and some others, and maybe I've heard that said before, is like a famous poker player. Pasha is also a world-class poker player, but he's not like the one that's out in front of the TV cameras. He's behind the scenes and he uh, operates. We talk about his poker playing, how that he leveraged those experiences of playing poker into his investing career, how that investing career has then started building out his passive wealth machine. One of the things that I talk about quite a bit on this show. So the passive wealth machine, um, his investment criteria, how he came here from Iran in uh, when he was three years old and what it was like growing up in this country as an immigrant and then how he has then leveraged and unlocked these, you know, Pasha 2.0 and 3.0 version of himself. It's a very exciting episode. I look forward to Pasha. Pasha Esfandiari, man, I am, uh, I'm stoked that you're on, on the podcast today. So I, I've got to hear little snippets of your story. You know, uh, obviously people have talked to me about, you know, the poker guy, uh, that's now investing into, you know, hotels and mobile home parks and, you know, and obviously you're just in Atlanta. I want to say re recently, it was like a week ago, two weeks ago, something like that. And uh, it's just fun seeing and, and uh, our other kind of mutual friend, Kevin, uh, we're having some shenanigans uh, related to that. So um, I'd like to do is, you know, kind of maybe give us uh, an opportunity to hear a little bit of your backstory. Like, uh, what's your story? How did you come? And uh, I know you're living in L.A. now. Maybe you've always lived in L.A., but kind of give that that uh, origin story and take a, a handful of minutes to kind of dive in to give people an opportunity to know a little bit about Pasha. And then we can kind of just take it uh, from there. Yeah, sure. It's it's always so weird to talk about myself. I'm the guy that's always had a trouble like writing the about me sections. But um, here I go. First of all, thank you for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. I think this can be a lot of fun. A little bit about my background. Uh, I moved here from Iran when we were about three years old. My father gave up everything back in Iran to move me and my brother here. My mother stayed behind back in um, Tehran, uh, where she currently is, which is that current situation is kind of crazy right now. And, you know, my father's quintessential immigrant family had to work jobs day in and uh, night to put food on the table for us. So I essentially had to raise myself, um, my brother being five years older than I, you know, 
Um, when he's 13, I'm eight. So there's a lot of differences there. So I had to really raise myself and kind of learn how to be social and, and get by and, and do all the things. And school came uh, naturally very easy for me. I'm a pretty quick learner. But when it came to college time, I absolutely despised college and dropped out immediately because I knew that this wasn't for me. That's been one thing that I've, you know, now really appreciative about myself is that I'll cut off something that doesn't really work for my life or a way of life I want to live. So, you know, kind of fumbled around really like for a year after dropping out of college until I really discovered poker. My brother had won a big tournament in 2004. And I said, well, if he could do it, I could do it. And started playing poker. And I really enjoyed the mental acuteness you had to have to be a good player and to win. It was a challenge. Also, it was something that I was making quite a bit of money at. By the time I was 20 years old, I was making more than most, you know, the average medium of what uh, salary is in the US. So that was pretty cool. I traveled the world. Played a lot of poker for the next four or five years until I was about 26 years old. What I really realized when I was 25, I, I didn't really enjoy where I was. Even though, although poker afforded me a lifestyle that I really liked and afforded me to do a lot of cool, badass things, I wanted to create something bigger. Uh, and luckily at that time as well, I went through an emotional intelligence course. I stayed in that for about two years, really pivoted who I was in a complete 180. And started attacking my life, uh, my relationships, my health, and my goals incredibly seriously. And that's when I got into real estate. Um, at this time, I was living in Las Vegas. So transitioning from Poker Pro to real estate, started flipping homes. Moved to Los Angeles about you know four or five years later. Started developing uh, residential real estate on, on um, Hillside. Because I have a tendency to go where there's less competition. That's kind of what I did in my poker world. That's how I attribute my poker, uh, my, my real estate life. And then now I got into strictly uh, mobile home parks and I did, you know, a motel in Vegas um, and apartment complexes in the Midwest as well. And now I'm just kind of focused on that. And that's a little bit of my journey about what got me to here at this point in my life. I love hearing that. I love hearing that kind of overarching uh, story. I'd love to, love to dive in. There's a, a few things that obviously what your investments are, you know, mobile home parks and what you're doing now and also going where the competition isn't. I think that's super smart. And so we'll kind of put a pen in that uh, to kind of bring back around later in the call. Um, but I wanted to talk about, you know, you know, what was that like as far as the, the initial you know, coming to the country, you know, three years old, your dad, you know, uh, bringing you over. Um, what were some of the adversities that you, you faced during that time? Um, did you have other kind of Iranian, you know, Persian friends kind of in the area, you know, and, you know, maybe kind of talk me through that, that kind of childhood that, um, what it was like for you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a pretty loaded question. There was some adversity there for sure. I don't really know where my footing was and, and who I was because really I was raised essentially by my grandparents for the first few years as my, my dad was working and I had to figure it out and I didn't really know what was right, what was wrong. I didn't really have anyone to bounce ideas off or talk to because again, my grandparents were just much older. So there was a lot of trial and error and a lot of stupid mistakes. I mean, I could give a few that... I found myself craving attention and love. And during middle school or and towards the beginning of high school, I found myself really saying just like obscene, weird things of trying to make friendships. Like I was trying to be the class clown. I was trying to make everybody laugh. And I really, that didn't really resonate with who I am, but I found myself craving love and uh, friendship. Because, you know, I don't really know kind of the way to go about it. So there was some adversity there, a lot of trial and error. Essentially, when you have to raise yourself, you just kind of have to figure this out, you know, up until like I was 19 years old and I started reading personal development books. And that was like, oh, hey, like there's an outlet here for people like myself who are trying to get better, um, which is such, you know, up until that point, though, in my life, it was really difficult because I kept beating myself up. I'm incredibly hard on myself. It is something that I am working on to be gentler. Um, but I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs have that attribute within them. 
But I said, this is an outlet. And then it really kind of got ingrained in me. And everything I wanted to do was just based around education. Anything I wanted to get better on was education was, you know, this book, that book, this trial, that practice. And, you know, what I've learned over the years is that we're just a set of patterns that we've reinforced over and over again, which is really kind of a superpower to really think that way of yourself of being very moldable. So yeah, definitely some adversity. And uh, yeah, I know I brought it back to present day, but um, yeah, it was, it was, it could be quite tough. No, that's, I, and you know, you, you said you mentioned you took some EQ or um, emotional intelligence kind of stuff. And so like, what was that practice like for you as far as, and I know at least the, the, not at all an expert in this field as far as my limited uh, information and reading some of those books. Like sometimes it goes back to some of those adversities and you're having to rework through, you know, some of those challenges or those things that maybe were holding you back or your confirmation bias or some of these other things. So like what, what led you to that, um, that emotional work and then like, what was it, you know, were there key books or things that you kind of discovered in that process that kind of helped you e- evolve up to the, you know, Pasha 3.0 version of yourself? You know, one, one thing that I love to talk about is, and, and to say that's like food for thought is that, you know, most of our patterns are dictated by these childhood like um, decisions we've made. And the best example of that is if you're in a classroom setting, when you're you know, six, seven years old and you raise your hand like we all do because we're all enthusiastic as children and you say the wrong answer, what does everyone do? All the kids just laugh at you, right? And in that moment, you feel super embarrassed and you feel like, oh crap, I can never answer unless I have the right answer. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want people to make fun of me, right? But you make that decision when you're a child and now as a 38-year-old man, I still find myself not wanting to raise my hand so who's really like making the decisions there, the me as an adult or me as like a five or seven year old? And so that that's what emotional intelligence is. It's really to get you back into the states of being where you make really strong decisions because most of us make really life changing decisions when you're really put into a very emotional state. Tony Robbins always says when you uh, experience enough pain that's when you'll make a different decision in your life, right? You're in an emotional state. So the reason why I got into it, um, my brother and growing up in a Persian household, we never talked about emotions. We never talked about loving each other. You just kind of shoved it all in the inside and you just don't talk about these things. And my brother came to me randomly and just hugged me and told me he loved me and cried. And I'm like, who the hell are you? Like, what cult did you join? I, I don't want anything to do with you. And he goes, you got to go this course and you have to do this. This is life changing. I was like, it's good. I don't want to do it. Um, but there's this one course in there. It's like a business course. And he's like, well, you can't go in that unless you do this course. And that's like a prerequisite. I said, fine. And I went in with all my guards up and like, hey, I know better. And within, you know, uh, 30 minutes of the first night, I was already crying. I was like, all right, I'm in, let's do this. Uh, And what that really did for me, Jake, was I bottled up all of my emotions. And that's the only way I knew how to survive um, up until that point. Once I was in that emotional intelligence course, I was able to finally feel A, safe and free to express my emotions, all of my emotions. And so it was a wonderful release and a reconnection of what I wanted, who I am, and a really a new chapter for me to create a different vision for myself. I feel that from you. And it was like, uh, you know, I feel that. And actually, uh, you know, my wife and, uh, you know, your wife, we were down in Dallas a year ago or somewhere around there. And like, I think that was the first time I'd met you in person. I think we maybe kind of shared some calls back and forth, but it was like, I could feel that. And, and I want to see it's maybe a lightness uh, about you as far as from uh, like an energy, like there's, you know, times of the energy that there's people that, you know, like maybe they're dealing with some stuff uh, is that, you know, it's kind of like this dark and kind of heavy energy around that. Like it was like from you, it was not that it was like this. Uh, emanating and you were, you know, kind of, I don't say floating, if that may seem, sound weird and woo woo or something like that. But it was like, that was what I got from you, uh, you know, uh, when I was like, wow, this is 
are we friends now? Like, this is cool. Like, let's <laughs> yeah. hang out. Like, and, and, and by the way, also your wife is super awesome. My wife still talks about that, uh, as far as connecting up. So, um, whatever it was in that process. And I know that was some years ago. So like, you know, maybe walk me a little bit more through like, what are some of these things that from when you first got exposed to it to now, you know, at 38, you know, you've had a little bit more practice and what is that that you're doing and how have you put that into your maybe daily routine or weekly or monthly, or what is it that you're doing to continue to bring that out as far as in who you are. I mean, I don't know if it's intentional, but knowing you a little bit more, I believe there's some thought behind that. So that's why I'm asking. Yeah. Thank you so much. And it was awesome connecting with you as well. We feel the same way. Um, and you have that lightness and playful energy as well. I think the first thing that um, came to my mind was, you know, up until 25, I was depressed sometimes more than others. When I was a child, way more than when I was 25. When 25, I just felt like I was floating around life and getting through it. But when you've lived most of the majority of your life depressed and then realize the power of making a different decision to be happy and then reinforcing that, I, I don't think I can ever go back to that those dark times, right? I'm getting chills even talking about it. I really cannot. It's I'm so adverse to that. Now I'll feel my feelings if I feel sad and emotional and whatever, but I'm so grateful for the life I have and I'm so grateful for what I've been able to create. And that is really the biggest thing that I really got from that moment of time where I spent that two years in these personal development EQ times is if I had to boil it down to one thing and there's, there's many, many multitude of things that I could do and talk about is that. I became responsible for everything in my life, everything like to my core. If anything goes wrong in my life, I am responsible for it because it's so empowering when you think that, when you think even macro things that are out of your control, but you say, hey, I, if I went another path down in my life, I could have affected that, that kind of responsibility then anyone who talks to you, any results you get, any gamification that you have in your life in any way, you are now the dictator of the results. And that has unlocked everything for me. And so you couple that with like crystal clear vision for what you want to create um, in your life and to really be focused on those certain goals. I think it's just like a, it's my formula to my life and I think to success, not only financially, but in relationships and in health and everything that matters in life as well. And there's so many nuggets just in that one thing. I, I, it's like, I agree a hundred percent with you as far as that. It's kind of crazy to think about that, how everything you're responsible for everything in your life, how that has some weight to it, but also it's at the same point freeing, you know, because now all of a sudden you're not in reaction to the the world it's it's just like the, you get to kind of manifest out and uh, to me that's the slang thing is like now it's like no it's not the world happening to me it's me and everything's happening for my benefit and either if that's pro or con so i love that you mentioned that i love that you talked about that um it, it, you know, and obviously we're not, I don't want to necessarily dive into the, the investments quite yet. Uh, I actually want to dive into something uh, that I, I know you for is your health is I think you are super, super intentional uh, about your health and your routines and your ice plunges and, you know, who you're working with. And so um, I want to see how, like how that health journey started for you and then where and what it looks like today. I think it uh, really just being in the poker world or the gambling world, you always make these bets. And sometimes I'd make a bet like a six pack bet and you have a certain amount of time to get a certain body fat percentage. But that that wasn't really sustainable. What really happened was um, because I'm able to be really forward thinking in my life, the well, first of all, let's back up. I, I had a really uh, I had a, um, a hernia, uh, had a surgery on it and it got infected. And because I wasn't really living a healthy lifestyle after I got that surgery. I really uh, contemplated, hey, what am I doing differently? Like health becomes really important when you're almost sepsis and you're in the hospital. Like what really matters? It's love and longevity and life. And so that really was like a boiling point for me. And that happened about three years ago. And then 
the fact that, you know, I want to be a father and I want to be forward thinking about how do I want to be a father? My, my father wasn't around. I mean, obviously, cause he was working, he, was, he brought us here and I own the world, but I want to be a father that can play with my kids. I want to be able to play football and soccer and be athletic with them. And that's really important to me. And so I started this health journey because of that, because I know that this is a set of patterns. And I know by the time that I want my kids to be born, I want it to be so ingrained in me and I want them to see my habits. So I'm starting a few years early. And this has been about a two-year journey now that I've I've worked with a nutritionist. I do an ice plunge. Everything that I do is most mostly for longevity. I work out five times a week, but also being able to enjoy my life as well. So I'm not super strict on my diet. I enjoy my life. I just want to feel healthy. There's been times in my life where I felt like, oh, healthy is the definition of what you think is aesthetically pleasing. And that was just an asinine thought. I just want to feel healthy. I want to be healthy. I want to have a lot of energy for my children, for myself. And really, as you start to do this journey and feel good about yourself, it emulates to all aspects of your life. Um, so now I'm just a big fan of it. And now I just can't get enough of all this like biohacking and all that good stuff. No, that's, um, that's awesome. I mean, cause it's like as a father too, same thing. It was like, man, does that put some, some weight to the decisions that you're doing on a daily basis? And I'm an older father, you know, uh, and, and you know, we're thinking about having more kids. And so it's like, uh, you know, now I tell people that I'm going to live to 140 years old. Uh, that's the plan. Yeah. And so that's, I told uh, another hundred years. So more than 140. So, uh, which is interesting. Uh, do you know who Mark Victor Hansen is? I have not heard of him. He wrote the chicken soup for the soul books and a bunch of things like that. So like a gazillion books. And I was at a dinner uh, with Ken McElroy and him, and we were sitting there and I was telling them like, I'm going to live another hundred years. And he stares at me and he's like, with an option to renew. And I was like, excuse me. I was like, what does that mean? And he was like, he's like, well, what happens if you get to 143 and you decide you want to live more? He's like, so you need to make sure so that you're not limiting yourself to that. And I was like, rarely does people tell me to go think bigger. Usually, you know, other than the group of guys that I'm with that I tell them, Hey, I'm going to live another hundred years. Most people laugh. Ha ha ha. I was like, I'm not joking. Like this is this, no, for reals. I'm, I'm living my life as if I'm going to do that. And, uh, you know, so yeah, he helps say think bigger. And that was one of the things that I see around you is that you're living that and your actions are also results of that. Your actions are what you're doing on a daily basis. And, you know, they say you're the average of the five people you hang around with most is like when I get in groups and there's a bunch of other dudes that are like, I'm going to live to 140. I'm going to live another hundred years. And we're like, hell yeah, let's do this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, I think most people are not taking account that Moore's law really is coming to play. And just like our technology is just advancing so freaking quickly, especially that they just are doing, um, compete, uh, com what is the word for it? Like, uh, computing on, there's another, there's another computing that's happening right now. And it's just going to blow the top off of what we have right now. Um, and so like that's just got created. And now that technology is going to advance even more, they're not taking into account that, you know, 40 years from now, the technologies that we're going to have because of Moore's law, we, we can't even fathom what's happening. And so I, I feel like we're in a perfect prime age to be able to take advantage of the technologies that are going to come out, especially our, our future kids too, man. Like my future kids, they're going to be able to take advantage of this cool technology that's going to come out at a like lightning speed, which is, is really fun to think about uh, as well. Well, I'd love to actually spend a little time talking about poker because I know that is such a component of your life as far as that it became kind of the foundation. And obviously, um, so talk me through your brother wins this big poker tournament, makes a bunch of money. And you're like, wait, I don't know how I am with my brothers, too. It was like, hey, if he could do that, I could do better. Uh, so I was like, talk me through like your journey. How how did you get into poker? Then what what has that uh, poker life been? And, and are you still doing it? So uh, I was saying the last few years, I've massively slowed down. 
Um, I'll still go play here and there. And a lot of times I'll go play with my buddies and whatnot, but I'm really focused on what I'm doing with the mobile home park business and uh, Evo Capital. But my journey with poker was exactly that. You know, I, I, I didn't really have too much direction out of college. I just knew it wasn't for me. I saw my brother doing it. I was able to pick up the game really quickly. So I was able to excel at, you know, winning money or my results pretty quickly. But there was a lot of negativity that comes with poker. I mean, you have to take other people's money. You have to, you know, for myself, I, I'm a pretty sociable guy. I actually genuinely love almost everybody and, until you give me a reason not to. And being at the poker table, I found myself having to trick my mind into not liking everybody, which is not a fun feeling for me. But that's when I played my best poker, you know, and there's been times in those years, those like formidable five years of playing poker and really learning how to be like a young adult that had really bad decisions making too. Like there was plenty of times where I've lost 150% of my net worth playing poker in one night. You know, I would build, build, build the bankroll and then I would just lose it all. Or I would just go to like a vacation and blow my whole bankroll because I just lived in the moment, right? There was no forward thinking in there. But I'm so grateful for what poker has afforded me. I'm so grateful for the teachings and the mentality I've taken from poker. Poker will always be a part of my life. I have some of my best friends. I've met some of the greatest people because of poker. And and there's a lot of bad with it, but if you can uh, siphon, siphon off all the bad and really be in with the good, it's, it's, it's such a wonderful sport as well. Um, so a lot of who I am, a lot of all my connections, and obviously the butterfly effect to get me where I am today, I'm so grateful for. So yeah, it's been, a, it's been an interesting journey. I, at the end of the day, decided to get out of it because I I've always loved real estate. It's, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I'm pretty sure, because people have asked me why real estate, I'm pretty sure I, I took on my dad's dream because he couldn't be able to do it. And he always talked about real estate growing up. And I knew he gave up everything for us. So now like my father's my biggest fan. Every time I get a deal, anytime I launch a fund, anytime I do anything, he's the first person I call. And he's just so like happy for me. Secondly, the lifestyle for me was not conducive to what I wanted to build. I mean, I'm up till, I mean, there's been days where I've been up for three days and like, and that's just not conducive to a healthy lifestyle in any way, uh, shape or form. And I really, really enjoy my sleep. So that wasn't really conducive to that too. Yeah. That's the, uh, it, it, the typical, you know, like up all night, you know, partying kind of poker, you know, kind of vibe is, is, you know, at least what in my head, um, I don't know that I've been, you just can't leave that the extreme of on tilt. Yeah, you just can't leave the poker table. Like when you're playing professionally, you can't be, you know, I always share this thing. There's uh, a term called a whale. A whale at the poker table is somebody who is really rich and can lose a lot of money. And I've been thinking about this lately and I don't know why this keeps popping up in my mind. But, you know, I was at the poker table one night and I just, I said, this is such ass backwards thinking. Everybody wants to be really good at poker to beat this one whale, to hope and pray that a, a poker whale sits at their table and loses a bunch of money to them. When the, I started to think about it when I was younger and wanted to quit poker, I was like, I don't want to be the good poker player. I want to be the whale. Like, that's, that's the way to go. And that's how I always thought of it is like, hey, I'd rather go be the whale who has, you know, the money to lose and just having a good time instead of having to hope a whale gives me money. Oh, that's a, that's a great, great way of thinking about it. I'd, I'd love to kind of, you know, dive into like some of the lessons that poker has taught you that's helped you as an investor. Um, you know, what are some of those things and how did you learn some of those lessons at the poker table? Yeah. So low hanging fruit. I think we talked about this earlier. I go where there's less competition. So every time in my poker career, I never, ever cared about the fame or the glory. You know, my brother's really famous inside of the poker community. He's one of like the winningest poker players in the world and everyone knows him. He's on all the big shows or was, but I never cared. I just cared about the cash games. I just cared about the making the money. So I always went where there's less competition to play with the worst players. And that's, that's essentially what followed me into my real estate investing career. Even when I started flipping homes, I found myself attracted to the, 
partially burnt down homes, the homes that had the hoarders, you know, the homes that were harder because I, I fundamentally believe the more headaches you solve, the more you get rewarded in the back end. That's also why I made the jump to land up construction hillside without ever developing before. I solved a lot of problems and I got rewarded on the back end for it. Same with mobile home parks. It's not easy in the beginning when you first buy a mobile home park. It's a lot of headaches. You get rewarded on the back end for it. So there was a less competition there. Um, so I always go where there's more yields, less competition. Secondly, education is your foundation of everything. To be a good poker player, you have to learn what the other opponents are doing. You have to understand at all times, like, are they getting better? What are they thinking about? Actually, I'm going to jump into that second comment soon. And so education really is the foundation of everything I do. Everything I know I want to do in the future or everything I want to do, I start uh, going to seminars. I read all the books. I, I become friends with people who are doing this about three to five years uh, forward from me. So I can learn exactly what they did and then emulate it. Um, and so poker taught education, whatnot. Third is it really, really gets you to start breaking odds down in your mind. So everything that I do, um, I just kind of programmed him into me now. Uh, I try to have a very realistic, non-emotional approach to every decision that I make. Is this decision going to be better for the long term? Is this a short term result? How do I fuse it? What are my odds for this bet that I'm going to make? And you have to follow the math. And so any decision I make, it's about doing the right decision that's going to be compounded over time, that's going to win. And that's really what you have to do in poker. And that's the way I look at my life as well. I break things down mathematically. What are the odds in my favor? Am I going to win this bet? Is this property going to be around 10 years from now? Are we going to be able to, be able to make much money? And then if the answer is yes, then we go for it. So really kind of teaches you mentally how to be a long-term thinker and just doing the right thing over and over again will compound. There's some other ones like, you know, how to read people, how to read between the lines because, you know, at the poker table, everyone's always trying to lie to you. So you're always kind of picking things apart and you, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to turn it off now if I'm having a conversation and someone says something that's a little bit out of left or right field, you know, I'll just kind of store that and be like, hmm, I wonder what that meant. And then I'll try to break it down, ask some clarifying questions or, you know, whatnot, especially in negotiations with uh, brokers or sellers. It, it really kind of helps quite a bit. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. Can you, before you get into like having to learn about kind of your competition or how they're progressing, maybe give me an example of that you've noticed um, where you're reading people that that's not at the poker table. Obviously somebody's trying to bluff, you know, um, their way into a pot or something like that and trying to buy the pot versus, uh, you know, now in the real world, you're at a meetup, you're talking with a broker, talking to a seller. Is there any times that you've kind of like, oh, he's bluffing or he's doing that. Maybe if you could give some examples of how you've seen that play out in your investing world. Yeah. I mean, there's not like, one specific one that was like stands out more than other but when you're having a conversation let's just let's just say a broker or a seller if you ask enough questions 
the truth is going to come out, right? And a lot of people are saying, hey, this is where we're at. This is where we're at. Only to ask clarifying questions to get a little like slip in there that you're like, oh, actually, I think they'll go a little bit lower. There's been a lot of times with, within me and my partner, um, we're talking about negotiations. I say, no, we're not budging. We're staying here. Just trust me. This is, I, I just know this from talking with the broker. This is where they're going to be at. With, even with all the hard ball that they play, and you know, I'm not right every time, but I'm, I would say that I'm going to be batting about 90 to 95% on those. And so this is why I handle all the negotiations. Um, and then like, you know, there's sometimes in, there's a lot of times in meetups when people uh, are trying to put their best foot forward with you that they try to create an image. And I think that if you are able to really read between the lines and ask some good, powerful questions, you can really kind of poke holes and to see who they are authentically. One thing that I have developed is uh, I hate small talk. So I just try to avoid it at all costs. So I've developed a bunch of questions that I ask because I generally want to get to know people on an authentic level. I actually am pretty allergic to people talking about business uh, when I first meet them. Uh, it's, I don't know why it's always kind of interesting. I try not to talk about my business because I feel like anyone who, like, let's say, will invest with me will become my friend first. And then I'll we'll naturally talk about it because that's kind of... I think about business 24-7. And when I'm around new people, I want to get to know new people. Yeah, I was actually, that was one of the things I wanted to ask about is the questions that you have, because you do have some fantastic questions. And it is something that um, uh, my wife has, has brought up to, to me that sometimes when I'm in different circle of friends, uh, or maybe some of hers, she's like, you're just like sitting there like a bump on the log. And I was just like, like, what's wrong with you? Uh, you know, cause I can be pretty animated and very like, you know, driving a lot of energy towards conversation, but I was like, it, it, like exactly what you said, if it's just related, like small talk and gee, uh, you know, how, how'd my barber do today? You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's like, I, I'm just kind of like, it's okay. making me uncomfortable but, thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just kind of like, is circling behind I'm getting, and I'm like, I want to go sit in the corner and let me know when I can go home, you know, kind of thing. So, but it's, that's, that's interesting. You know, you mentioned earlier that you, you learn about your competition if they're getting better. Give me some some insights on that. What does that mean for you, and how did that translate to to poker, or maybe to your competitors, or what they're doing? Yeah, sure. I mean, in poker, you're gonna always have to adapt. So the best poker players in the world are the ones who can adapt quicker to somebody shifting to your style faster, right? So you always want to be think asking yourself powerful questions all the time. Do they know? What are they thinking about? Who are they? Um, you're all asking all these like you know, third, fourth level meta questions to yourself is like, do they see what I see? Were they paying attention to this hand? You're trying to um, put all this incomplete information together into like a uh, decision making on the spot for sometimes large sums of money, which is sometimes faulty. Your thinking is faulty, but you're always able to reevaluate it. What you will notice in poker though, that the game, you know, at least for when I started playing and I was playing quite regularly, the speed of adoption and adaption to styles were getting quicker and quicker. Everyone first came out with um, wanted to read Super Systems by Doyle Brunson and how to be super aggressive. So you see that everyone's being super aggressive. So you have to adapt your game really quickly. So that's what everyone else is. You just ask questions like, hey, what books are you reading? Da, 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 da. And you kind of you can gauge a temperature of what everyone's kind of digesting. And you say, oh, okay, so now the majority of people are reading this way. Let me go ask somebody who's plays a little bit more tight and aggressive in a trappy style. Let me go ask them, like, you know, what's working for you if everyone's being overly aggressive and then you adapt your style. So it would be hard not to see. And if you didn't see it, you're just going to get slaughtered at the poker table. So you have to learn how to adapt. You have to learn how to get education. You have to understand where your competition is coming from, what they're learning, how they're learning. And you need to go learn the same things so that you have that same information so you know how to play against them. I think that can translate into everything. Luckily, in the real estate world, you're not really competing with a lot of people. I mean, sure, sometimes you get bids here and, and bids there against each other. But in the real estate world, I find that everyone's trying to help each other, right? And there's, there's just so much wealth to be created in real estate that everyone genuinely started from somewhere and someone helped them. And that's kind of what I see. It's, it's like so polar opposite from poker. We're all trying to win in real estate. Yeah, that's... Um... <laughs> Man, there's so much abundance in this world. It is crazy. 
And there's just so many which ways you can make money in real estate. You know, it's like the guys that are, you know, doing triple net or you're doing, you know, ground up development, or if you're buying, doing value add and mobile home parks and rivers, you know, or hillside developments, you know, all of those things are completely different. I mean, they have some core principles that are the same, but it's just, it's just so, you know, widely divergent. And it's like, just because you're developing a, a house on the side of the hill in LA doesn't mean I can't go do one in, you know, in Northern California and Tahoe or something like that, you know? And it's just like so, so vast um, in, in existence. So and that's interesting as well, as far as the different techniques, you know, a, you know, Doyle Brunson's or doing, you know, something that's more trappy and tight and other things and how they play and, and complement. It's like, uh, you know, you know, somewhat like chess, you know, but also that it's, uh, there's what much more dynamic, you know, cause like chess has finite, you can only move so many squares. It's only this can move that Where like poker is as much as how you're playing the game to the cards that you're being dealt. And there's so many, you know, um, divergent ways in which it can, you know, go in a given hand um, and how you play it. And that's so much more like life and in real estate. That is just like, it is whatever you make it. There's so many variables flying at you in, in poker when it comes to people, hands, pot sizes, the type of game, setting, everything, tilt, not tilt solid player, not solid dynamic of the table. There's so many variables at it. And same with real estate. There's so many variables that you have to kind of comp compute and bring it all together into a package. So I'd love to dive into your real estate. So like you started getting, you know, talk to me about hillside development and then you now kind of what, you know, maybe let's just talk about the hillside development stuff that you were doing. Sure. One word. I'll, I'll sum it up real quick. Don't do it. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're going to do it, don't do it in Los Angeles County where there's neighborhood councils. I mean, it is a nightmare, um, slow and tedious. I mean, there's a lot of reward to do it, but it is expensive and clunky. Luckily, like I, I had that, you know, passion for it. I wanted to solve the problem and I did. That was really awesome. That was really fun. But there's been a lot of times where, you know, I'm still in one deal where my neighbor's a litigious lawyer. And so I've had that lot for about four years and I just keep getting sued time and time again, you know? And so it's, it's pretty, it's pretty rough. I'll tell you the reason why I got out of it though. Well, A, because I wanted to create a passive income machine because I knew I wanted to have a family soon um, amongst some other uh, goals that I have in the future. And secondly, I really started asking myself some powerful questions of like, what is my brain attracted to? Right. Um, you know, I have ADD uh, and it's a blessing in disguise because I am be able, able to be a macro thinker. I'm a visionary. Um, I like to think forward thinking. But sometimes having ADD and like wanting results, especially when you come from the poker background where you get immediate results, development when you're waiting two months for one decision is painstakingly hard. And so, this is what the reason why I got out of it because of the frustration. I really wanted to have something that I could build towards faster because I like seeing results. I like progression and I felt like mentally it wasn't progressing as fast as I wanted it to. Um, so that's why I got out of it and got into multifamily and then now uh, mobile home parks. I echo those sentiments as far as California makes everything more difficult to develop so painful and it doesn't get better. I mean, well, it does. Uh, other states are, are, are much better, other municipalities. But when you have humans, you know, and neighborhoods that, you know, are angry that you're building something that, you know, falling down crack house and you be like, I'm going to put some apartments there. And they're like, oh, what a terrible human you are. Right, exactly. You know, that, that, that has, <laughs> you know, um, you're like, what? Well, how? I'm just trying to make things better. Like, is literally the only driver that I was like, and, you know, make it so, so difficult. You mentioned, and it's obviously Passive Wealth Principles, the podcast show is like, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your diving into your passive income machine and, you know, that process in which you, um, you know, defining out there as far as, you know, what is it? And I, and I think has something to do with your mobile homes and your apartments and these other things. So now a little bit more Pasha today. Yeah. So, you know, my journey from development to multifamily. 
I bought a 74 unit about a few years ago. And during that 74 unit, I actually at that time was just looking for like a one residential home to start burr, to do the burr method. But I want to be in the low income housing because I have some goals in the future to build low income communities. So, but then the realtor said, hey, I have 74 units of all triplexes and quadplexes. Do you want to take a look at it? I said, sure, I'll take a look at it. I thought the numbers were insanely good. Had someone overlook my shoulder, like, no, you're right. You underwrote it right. I was like, okay, so we bought it. But during escrow, um, I asked the property managers, hey, do you have anything else that might, that you know that's off market? And they're like, we actually have 180 unit that another uh, owner tried to sell off. You want to take a look at it? I said, sure, looked at it. And that made a lot of sense too. And I said, oh crap, all right, so I got to buy this property as well now too, because if the property makes sense, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to make it work. Right. And all my money was tied up in residential, but I was able to get a bridge loan and did all these different things and whatever I got it. And I just started realizing that, you know, uh, passive income really, this is the, the way to build true wealth is this equity that you can build into commercial real estate. But what happened is I had a friend of mine convince me to buy a mobile home park and um, I don't really know much about it. I hadn't studied it. I had my education in multifamily and apartment complexes, but uh, he's like, I'm gonna put my own money into it. And he's a really smart guy. So I was like, right, I'll put some money with him too. I guess that's part of the gambling side of me. I'll say, sure, let's do it. Uh, I know the numbers enough, let's go for it, right? We bought it and that one property, even though I thought I was buying on top of market through my traditional apartment complex lens, yielded me more better returns and better cash flows than my apartment complexes on a on a ratio for per rata ratio i said oh crap there's like something here if i was thinking that way i'm sure thousands of other people were thinking that way as well but let me adapt quicker just go relating it back to the poker thing and then i just dove in i started educating i started talking to anyone i knew about mobile home parks and talking i said oh man this is like the last untapped kind of real estate market in my opinion that um, I could still buy from mom and pop sellers from a lot of inefficiencies. And so I decided to really attack this, divert all of my um, energy, as you would say, towards attacking mobile home parks. And with that, then I started, once I ran out of money, I started to syndicate some deals. And then now I have a fund because I really do truly believe this is, at least for my opinion, a, a, an untapped market. And I want to attack it as fast and vigorously as possible. Yeah. And I mean, that is, uh, you know, if you're talking affordable housing, I mean, I, I don't know that you can get any affor more affordable than mobile home parks. And there's still a massive amount of need. And I've talked about this in a lot of different, uh, you know, podcasts and, and, you know, places is that there's a significant housing shortage in this country right now, and it's going to drive an affordable, uh, and this is maybe the greatest seismic, you know, um, issue that is facing America as a whole is like people need a place to live. I mean, you can stay with family, but that only lasts kind of for so long. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I have, I have one thing to say, like, you know, a challenge that I, I would say to anyone who's in commercial real estate is that what other aspect of commercial real estate where the, the supply is actually dwindling and the demand is increasing. There's no other sector of commercial real estate that that is actually happening. RV buildings are getting built out, self-storage is give up. But by the way, self-storage is crushing it and they're gonna do awesome for a long time. Uh, retail centers are a retail, um, I think are still always gonna be able to be built out. Office centers, I don't know if anyone's gonna really want those as much. And housing will always keep getting built. So, but it is one of the sectors that it is, the supply is actually dwindling. So I look at that, I couple it with the yields that I'm making, with the cash flows that I'm making, uh, with an inefficient market sector. And I think this 10 years from now, you know, it's going to be more and more demand for low-income housing because unfortunately, the middle class is getting squeezed and squeezed. So what's the next step? Lower. It's low-income housing and there's none that are getting built. So I'm pretty passionate about it. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I think you with your background as a developer, try to take some land and say you want to go build a mobile home park 
especially in infill. You think neighbors are upset about you building a nice apartment complex or a, you know, a nice house or something like that. Go try to tell them you're going to put a mobile home park there is, you know, you will have them lose their minds that you're driving down real estate prices. You know, like they, they get crazy. And so like to your point is like, even if you could add more mobile home parks is harder and harder to do because you know the the zoning and the approvals are uh, more and more difficult to do especially in some of these areas that are already more established you know kind of these infill type parks out in the greenfield out in the middle of nowhere where maybe people shouldn't be living but maybe they do uh that is one of those things that i think is very much going to continue to drive demand. Uh, so I think you're in the right, uh, you know, lane. I'd like to spend a little bit of time about, you know, some of the things that you have found to help you uh, on that education process. You know, how you have educated yourself or if there were certain books or other things that, you know, you found to be especially useful, because a lot of people that are listening to this exactly that they go, wow, that's great. Pasha's got a world class, you know, poker player. He's got piles of money that he can go buy apartment complexes and mobile home parks now. But how can I do that? Um, or how can I educate myself? And so I just want to try to help give them some value. And, then, you know, obviously, you know, the way that you think, it's almost like a little bit like an engineer. So systematically of, of doing that, I think you can provide a lot of value to people. It's like, how did I do it? Yeah. You know, I think in the beginning of everything, I, I went to the resources that were easier for me. That would be reading any books that you can on any topic. Go find the best rated books on Amazon. That's a very low hanging fruit. I have developed a passion to go to seminars and to be in the energy of it. Because for me, when I'm just getting bombarded with information, sometimes my brain is just able to think of these one or two, three good concepts that I'm going to apply really quickly. And then with time, so it was always education books, online courses. Then it went to like live seminars and talking with people. And then now, you know, I'm in the fortunate position now that I have such a good network and a vast network of people that I think the number one way to any really strong education is go find somebody that's two to three years ahead of you that's doing exactly what you want to be doing and get a play-by-play -by, -play by them, which most people want to help. Like that is one thing I want to share with people is that everybody wants to help other people. It's just ingrained in it, most of us at least, right? I don't want to generalize everybody, but I want to say I'd probably bet that 90%, 95% of people will always want to help you. So go find someone that's two or three years out, not 10 years out. Don't go find someone who's doing it 20 years out. Go find someone that where you want to be that's two, three years out. So that way give you the play-by-play -play of how they did it. And then don't reinvent the wheel and just go do it and then go do it with your own style and flavor to it. That's great advice. I call it, I call it R&D. Rip off and duplicate. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Because it's like, why? Why are you reinventing the wheel? Like, what did it, you should not go do something else. If somebody figured out they can be successful and, and they can shave two, three, four, five years off of the, your process, time is your most valuable asset. And I think that's one of the biggest, biggest hacks of being around people like you, being around other people, and kind of like some masterminds that we're in is like. Wow. Just not just the information, because you can read about pushups and health all you want. You actually have to go do some uh, exercise. You have to do the pushups. But then it's also like you shouldn't be doing a pushup. You should be doing squats because that's going to take you 10 times the effective thing. You're like, oh, wow, I should be. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Because I did look at me, you know, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. So I echo that sentiment so much that it is I wish I knew about masterminds and seminars and some of these things earlier. It seemed like it was such an expensive thing that I was like, oh, I don't know if I can afford that. Then it was like, I, I'm, I'm in for all of them. It's, it's such a bargain. It is such a bargain. Such a bargain. I mean, what I've learned from the masterminds, what I've learned from GoBundance is uh, priceless to what I have, like what I'm going to create in the future. 
I've always, I always talk about short-term results compared to long-term results. I have no problem of spending money up front if I know that long-term it's going to pay off in dividends. And like, but that's also goes back to one of our original topics of I'm so crystal clear what I want from 10 years from now. Decisions like that to me are not hard. If I know I have to go sign up for this thing, that's like $25,000 and it's like a weekend that sucks. Like, but if it's going to help me get to my 10 year goal, I'm going to go do it. Right. Because 10 years from now, because time will happen. Like it's, it's just, it's just linear. It's going to happen no matter what, but 10 years from now, I'll be thanking myself 10 years ago. Right. It's kind of like a retirement account. I try to tell, I always try to teach financial literacy to people and my friends, like you're going to get old one day. You're going to need to retire one day. It's going to happen. Don't think and be naive to think it's not going to happen. So you better start preparing for it. I went off on a little tangent. Couldn't help myself. No, I, I, I encourage tangents. I do them all the time. You know, it, it is like, you know, actually, I think uh, my video team and stuff, they are always recording me because I just go at, at random, you know, tangents everywhere. Um, it actually dives into a little bit of something. Uh, and I think it was you that I initially heard of the die with zero. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, to that financial literacy that you're kind of conveying out there, and maybe if, if, you know, um, as a tangent, a little bit die with zero, maybe what you can dive into that a, a little bit. And then what I want to do is I'm going to hit you with a couple of rapid fire questions as we kind of wrap up uh, the call um, so that I can make sure to respect your time. Um, so yeah, I was zero. Die with zero really kind of changed the game for me. First of all, Bill Perkins is a, is a very good friend of mine. He was actually in the emotional intelligence work with me um, when we were going through it originally. So he's a dear friend of mine. He's awesome. And the way he thinks and the way he thinks about life is just, it, lack of better words, just incredible and amazing, right? Uber successful guy writes this book about how to die with zero, how to maximize your experiences in life to match what you're going to want to do and feel. And it's like the, the easiest cliche is like, why are you going to work until you're 70 years old and then go travel the world? It makes no sense because when you're 70, you're not going to be able to enjoy and run around and have the energy to like jump off a cliff or go parasailing or whatever it may be. So go do that now to really shift your focus from money to experiences. Um, and, and that is what's most incredible. He also has been a great mentor to me. Uh, I tell this joke that one time he had three different assistances and I like made fun of him. I'm like, why do you have three assistants? Like it's asking, he goes, oh, you don't know, you don't care about your time then. I remember saying that. I was like, I don't really get it. I might've been drinking a tiny bit with him. And so, and, but now we always make like laugh about it. I, I realize the power of, um, delegating and help. And he's always taught me that Pasha fire yourself as fast as possible. There's 8 billion people in this world. I guarantee you, whatever you're doing, there's other people who could do it better than you do the things that you love and hire out. And that's been really a big game changer for me too, is really just being able to delegate, trusting good, smart people to do the job better than me and really has unlocked our business. It allows us to scale conservatively but scale at that rather by trusting others and bringing on teammates and partners and whatnot. So Die With Zero really is about how to shift your focus away from just getting up to that no, like arbitrary number net worth, but really being able to use that money for experiences. And that's what I do. Um, it's really changed the game for me. And now I don't think about, oh, this costs a little extra. Oh, that costs a little extra. I don't really care because I want the experience. Yeah, that is. I love that. I mean... <laughs> I, I even have my taking, we're doing an international, uh, trip. We do an international trip with my family and kids every year. We take them somewhere and it was exactly to that point of, of what you just mentioned. And actually I, it, that's what triggered it when you were talking about earlier, like the cost of spending some of that money up front that you knew it was going to be more worthwhile down the road, how you got over that. That's what triggered you know, the, the, the die was zero. Was it like those experiences are become marquee moments of our life, you know, as far as like, you know, foundational memories from that entire year. We spend a lot of time together as a family and we eat dinner at the, the, the family table almost every night, um, which is something that I try to instill into our, our family, our kids and stuff. 
But it's like those things in the memories is like when we went to Mexico or Peru or Spain or wherever, like it was like those become, you know, monumental things. And I think that is a, a very, very critical component is, man, money's fake. Money is like, it's it's not real. It's a, it's a faith into a system. And I know we could spend a whole other call on crypto and, uh, you know, other things, fiat, you know, currencies and other things like that. But I know that uh, we don't have time to dive into that now, but it was like, it's a transference of energy. So why are you collecting all this energy just to store it up and throw it away? Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, 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 we, could, we could actually have a whole another podcast about it because it is fake. It is arbitrary. And we only put value on it because we've been told to put value on it and because of an army that we have behind it. But uh, yeah, that's a whole Let's just not get into that one. Yeah, I was like, it, <laughs> we might have to do a part two. Pasha comes back yeah. and, and Pasha and Jake chop it up about uh, fiat currencies and, you know, the uh, just thoughts about controls. money. Yeah, thoughts yeah about I think money that's a great thing. Yeah. We'll definitely have to do that. Um, I do want to hit you. Um, I, I didn't prepare you for this question, so it'll be uh, you'll have to adapt quickly and take the environment. Uh, and, and actually, it is. What is the thing that you have spent money on recently that has given you more time? Oh, um, easy. Just more help in the, in, in the business and uh, hiring another PA, like a personal assistant. So now we have two for me and my family. Um, and that's, that's been a game changer. And then it's not that I spent any money on. It's a decision I made recently because I know we were going to have children sooner than later, that at 6 p.m. my work is done and I want to have my phone off. And I'm training myself before I have kids to do that. And so that my brain doesn't think that, you know, I have to be constantly with work. I want to be with my children that are coming. And VAs. Yeah. So it's, it's about delegating. That's what I've been spending money on. And this, and this might be an, another easy one. This might be a, a softball to you. Like what book have you gifted most to other people. And I, I think you're going to say die with zero, but I was like, let's maybe take the first, the two books. Price of tomorrow. Price of tomorrow. Price of tomorrow by uh, Jeff Booth. I believe it, it, it really was just an invaluable book for me. I think when I read it, it just, everything clicked about the macroeconomics of what, how to use leverage, what's happening in the backgrounds and in the shadows of our macroeconomy. It really taught me the power of leverage, assets, um, and, and how our society really works. And a digestible read and uh, a friend gifted it to me. And I've, I've gifted that book to a ton of people also think and grow rich as well. Those are the other two that I've always gifted out. I feel like I've seen price of tomorrow. I think there's something about as far as technology driving prices down. If not, I'll have to refresh myself uh, on that. But um, that, you know, kind of Moore's law and other things is how technology is driving prices down to uh, lower and lower prices overall. So Pasha, I really appreciate you. I appreciate Thank you, you man. so much for coming on this. Uh, again, uh, I don't say this lightly, but the way that you always come uh, every time I'm around you, how you very much radiate this energy out and, and you're, uh, again, you know, I say the, the word light just as from a, a weight weightlessness is what I, I feel from you oftentimes. And it is very fun and, and jovial and it's just enjoyable to be around you. And I appreciate the way that you uh, continue to show that. And it's actually you it gives other people that permission. And I see it in the way that you kind of walk in. And so I just want to thank you for um, how uh, awesome it is to be around you and how you bring that into others and convey that uh, that happiness. So thank you so much. Well, I wholeheartedly appreciate that. And I could obviously say the same about you uh, for sure. It's it's life is fun and it should we should have fun and be childlike. Um, 
even into adulthood. Any places that uh, you'd like to send people, where can they find you, hear more about the investments that you're doing? Or, you know, I know that it's not necessarily poker, um, but what's an ask of the audience and where can they find you? Sure. Yeah, we just launched a fund about a few weeks ago. And if you want a little bit more information, I think the easiest way is evocapital.net. You can just sign up a form and I'll be in contact with you. That's something that I really put a lot of focus on is I want to connect with any any investor, or any potential investor, show them what we're doing and whatnot. And that's the best way. Or you could go to, you know, Facebook, Pasha Svandiari, LinkedIn, Pasha Svandiari. I'm pretty good at responding. Awesome, man. Thank you, man. I appreciate this. Thank you, sir. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at Jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.